So last week, if you were here last week, who enjoyed the history lesson last week on Joshua? Well, the hands went down when I said enjoyed. Last week we talked about Joshua. Just before, history is amazing. How many of you were really good at history in school or liked it? There you go. Anyone? You didn't like history. I actually didn't like it, but I think I grew to like it later. History is one of these amazing things because history teaches us. History, when we look at history, we get to understand why today is, is like it is. And particularly in the Word, when we look at history, we get to see who God is. And that's why I get excited about this. And, you, and um, I tell you some stories from history. Last week, we looked at Joshua's life in the last chapter of Joshua. And if you remember that, he reminds them of the history that they come from where they come from and what God did for them. He reminded them all the stuff that God did for them. And he says, now serve God. And you remember what the people said? What did they say? No, they didn't go like this. They actually said something really loud. They said, yes, we will. We will serve the Lord, didn't we? You're going to have to interact with me. You're going to sit quietly or there really will be no coffee. I can get militant. No, I'm just kidding. And he said, now fear the Lord, serve God and, and keep going with God's plan and, and get rid of any foreign gods and don't intermarry. And you remember all that. Don't mix values, don't sort of enter into the... And um, then he had those famous words where Joshua says, you know, I don't know what you're going to do, guys, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they said, yeah, so are we. We got this. We're gonna, we're gonna... And, um, but we discovered last week, didn't we, that right at the next book, the judges, uh, it all falls apart. In chapter 1, they're already not driving the people out. They're mixing, they're intermarrying, they're watering down everything. And things don't go the way they're supposed to go. And so God comes up with a plan. And we're just going to read that now. It's going to be up on the screen. But if you've got your Bible, have a look at Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. We're going to read a couple of verses there. Judges chapter 2, verse 16. So we've had Joshua, he's passed away, and, and they're all going to do exactly what they're told to do. And um, as we heard last week, it wasn't going really well. Then Judges chapter 2, verse 16. Then the, raw, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. These raiders were these nations that were oppressing them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods. And worship them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people just returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers following other gods and serving and worshipping them. And they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so that's where we're at in Judges. And this is what's happening. You know, in um, chapter 2, at the start of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, he reminds them again of... um, We're reminded again of what happened in Joshua, how he said, you know, you need to, um, you need to, to follow God's ways... And then um, just before our reading from verse 10, and that might be on the screen as well, I think, Judges uh, chapter 2, verse 10 to 15, it, it reminds us of what we learned last week. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, 
another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord or what he had done. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods and, and the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. Those are those raiders we just read about. He sold them to their enemies all around who they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he'd sworn to them. They were in great distress. Those are the words just before our text in 16. So they've decided not to do what God called them to do, not to live the way that God asked them to live, not to pass on to the next generation. And a generation grew up that, that didn't, and they just got uh, progressively more corrupt. And God promised, if you're going to do that, I'm not going to be with you. The, the battles you wage, the fights you fight, the nations that you want to take in, the things that you really want to see in your life, my hand is going to be against you. And then if you read, if you keep reading, and we're not going to read big swaths, if you keep reading, it sort of culminates, this little section of thought finishes in chapter 3, verse, um, chapter three, verse 16, I think it is, or 6 rather. And basically it just says, they took their daughters in marriage, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served other gods, served their gods. The king is off the throne. And this now is the ultimate betrayal, isn't it? This is the God that took his people through, through the desert, saved his people, took them to the promised land, showed them the promised land, was going was gonna to give the promised land to them. And all he said is, follow me, I'll be your Lord and, and I'll be your king. And the ultimate betrayal is that the king's off the throne. They served other gods, they decided that other gods were better. And remember, the Canaanites were really, really very, very pagan people, dangerous and offensive and it was an offensive mix. What we see next, as we read on, is God's response. He raises up judges to save them, and that's what we read about, where he, he raised up judges. The people were oppressed because they chose not to follow God, yet each time God saves them, and they enjoy peace. Do you catch yourself wondering why? We're going to have a look at a couple of the judges in a minute, but, you know, if you've ever read Judges and you see how there's this kind of roller coaster where they, you know, a judge comes and, and then they're doing okay and the judge dies and they don't do okay and they get defeated. And then God keeps again and again. It's a bit like what Scott was talking about. They get a shot at the ring again and again. And do you ever catch yourself wondering why? Maybe, you, maybe it's just me. But I've often, you know, and, and read this and I've thought, why would God keep rescuing them when it just gets worse and worse? I don't think I would. I've always wondered why. There's a hint there in Leviticus, and, and I did put that, that scripture, just a couple of verses up on the screen. And this is why. It begins in 43b, Leviticus, if you want to mark, write the uh, reference down, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 43b says, They'll pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet, in spite of this, when they're in the land... Of their enemies, this is casting looking forward. When they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them, so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God, but for their sake 
I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. The reason God continues to do what he does is because he made a promise. He made a covenant with his people that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will always be, I will be your God. Whether you acknowledge it or not, I will always be your God. And whether you acknowledge it or not, you will always be my people. You know, and if you're a parent, you, you perhaps, perhaps, you know, it's not a great analogy, but if you're a parent, you, you begin to get that because you look at your child and, and that love just is, is overwhelming because you know that you will always be my son, you will always be my daughter. You may not always do what I like. You may not always recognize me as dad and, and you may not always want to recognize me, at least not publicly, as dad or mum. But you will always be my son. You will always be my daughter. And so as a parent, you, you kind of get that a little bit, don't you? This is what God's saying. You, you, will, you know, I made a promise, a covenant. And, 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 you know, God is the promiser of promises, isn't he? And that's why. And so today, I, I don't want to necessarily just focus on bad people like the Israelites, but I want us to see a loving and patient God. And if there's anything that, you know, I'm just reading through Joshua and Judges and Kings and Samuel and Kings, if there's anything that I've really, really uh, probably gleaned out of it this time, it's this whole sense of who God is. This whole sense of this, this loving and patient God who who just, is, just seems to have never-ending patience and love for us. And I want us to see that this morning. His love and patience is, and His grace is actually magnified in our weakness. It looks even greater when I, when I compare it to my, to my weaknesses. So I want to have a look at a couple of the judges in the times, just a random look at some of the judges, just to get a bit of a picture and to help us to see. Um, some of these stories are fascinating, and we're not going to read them all, um, but I encourage you to read them at some time. Some of them are fascinating. Some of them are just funny. Some of them are thinking, really? You know? Um, but first of all, I want us to understand who the judges are. Have you ever wondered, who are these judges? You know, what kind of people were they? And I found this quote, and I'm going to just um, pop that up for you. The judges were men and women appointed by God to deliver and maintain order among the Israelites. These judges were used to defeat the captors and to release the Israelites from their clutches. They were sometimes military leaders who knew how to mobilise the nation for war against an enemy, but their real power lied in their Torah knowledge and ability to adjudicate Jewish law. God worked through them to steer the Israelites into repentance and reconciliation with God. And though God was merciful enough to send out the judges, the Israelites developed a cycle of disobedience. That's just... For me, it was helpful to know who are these people. Were they just... Were they royalty? Were they just like really religious people, like were they the priests? Well, no, they weren't. They sometimes were war warriors and warmongers and people that, that God knew were, were enough, had enough smarts to judge and judge the people. So the first judge I want to have a look at is, is Othniel. And um, we're not going to, don't, don't, you don't need to look them up, but um, and they're not necessarily in order. Othniel was uh, the first judge and he was a warrior. He led, he led them in battle. He was leading Israelites in battle and God anointed him to also judge the people, uh, to be the one that would, they would come to, um, uh, to get judgments and, and to understand justice. The Mesopotamians oppressed them for eight years and then after, after our scripture there, 
and they cry out to God and he saves them through Othniel. And that they have that peace again and they enjoy 40 years of peace. So they've been oppressed because God said, look, I'm not going to resist your enemies. They cry out to God, he has mercy, Othniel comes along and he goes and, if you read the story, he goes and fights some awesome battles for them. But no sooner had Othniel died and they revert back to their wicked ways. And then we get a, a judge called Ehud or Ehud or however you want to say it. Because they were, they were attacked and they were made captive to the Moabites for 18 years. So all these nations around them kept on getting them. And again, they cry out to God and God raises up this judge Ehud. Now, he's an interesting guy because the story tells... And I'm just telling you a couple of interesting things. Ehud was left-handed. Now, why is that important? You know, Ehud was left-handed and he had his sword on the right. Now, most people um, had the sword on the left and they were right-handed. So when you were fighting, you were always watching the right hand. You know, a left-handed boxer is more dangerous than a right-handed boxer because people aren't ready for it. They're watching the right hand for the right hook. It's interesting. So he goes into fight. He takes them into fight and he still isn't using his sword. Now, the king of the Moabites is super fat. It's true. He's really, really fat. You read the story. He's, and they, they kind of win the battle, but they don't take the king. But Ehud's, he's, a, he's a warrior too. He says, we've got to take the king. So how am I going to take the king? Because he's surrounded by all these people. He goes into the king, still hasn't used his sword. He goes into the king and he, uh, he says to the king, I have, you know, we've beaten you, but, you know, I'm, I'm a reasonable man. I have a really serious and secret message for you. Read the story. I've got this secret message. And so I'm going to get rid of all my people so they can't hear the secret. And you get rid of all your people. So the king, duh, gets rid of all his people. And then <laughs> Ehud gets his left hand, pulls the sword out of the right, sinks the sword into the king. And the story is the king's so fat, the sword doesn't make it out the other side, but his front swallows up the handle and you can't see the sword anymore. I don't know why I told you that story. I just think it's really cool that there's some details in there, you know. And so, <laughs> and so Ehud leads the people into 80 years of peace. Of course, you know, Ehud's still warm in the grave and they go back to their wicked ways. And God allows the Canaanites to defeat and oppress them for 20 long years. They're defeated and oppressed. And then God raises up Deborah or Deborah, however you want to say it. To save them, and they have another 40 years of peace. Now, Deborah was a, a prophetess. She held court under a tree. The story is that she held court under a tree and she judged the people. She was a prophetess. Uh, she was anointed by God and she was leading Israel. And uh, God elevated her to the judge to, uh, to, to save them from oppression. Barak was the, here's another interesting thing Barak was the, the, the head muscle man of the army, right? But he was chicken of the enemy. And he was scared he was going to lose. So he says, unless you go with us, I'm not going into war. And so Deborah says, well, dude, if you want me to go in with you, then you, a woman is going to get the glory for this battle, which in our day would be kind of okay. But in those days, I went, excuse me. But she goes and she doesn't get the glory. But this other woman, who this, this other woman, Jael, kills the oppressor. And uh, she gets the glory. She gets the song written about her as the woman that won the fight. So Barak, who wanted to go down in history as a warrior, didn't get written about. There you go, Deborah. But then Deborah dies and end up in the seven years of oppression under the Midianites. And this is when we hear about Gideon. How many of you know the story of Gideon? 
So the Midianites, the way they oppressed people, or they oppressed the nation, is they wouldn't let them. As soon as the people worked really hard to, to grow a crop, you, know, you can imagine as soon as you worked really hard and, and saved all your money for your retirement, just as you're about to retire, they'd come in and plunder the ANZ and there goes your retirement. You know? So every time they would grow crops, they would, the Midianites would come and steal all their food and keep them hungry and poor. So they begin to grow crops in all these little secret places in the mountains and all these hidey places. That's why you see Gideon hiding somewhere, grinding. Remember the story of Gideon? He's hiding somewhere trying to grind the, the flour because if he gets seen, they're going to nick his flour. And he's this reluctant judge, but God raises him up to, uh, to lead the people. And you know that story. I'm not going to go through the whole story of Gideon. You know how he, how he defeats this humongous army with just a few people. And he gets that creative way, those that you know, lap the water like a dog or those that, you know that story of Gideon. And I'm telling you the, some of the little creative details because I love the way that God isn't just sort of, like he's really creative, how he does the, the supernatural through the unexpected. You know, and I like that. I think that's really cool. But of course Gideon dies. After 40 years of peace, Gideon dies and you know, uh, God raises up Tola and Jair. And it rescues them from civil war. And then they enjoy 45 years of peace. And at that point, if you read in, in chapter 10, it's almost like God does get to the point where saying, you're not going to get another shot at the ring. I am actually sick of this. You guys just keep getting it wrong. And, and I'm getting more and more offended as you go. But it's almost like God has a double take and a rethink. And, um, and he says, you know, in, in um, chapter 10 to 11 and 16, we won't read that, he says, you know, but I can't bear your misery any longer. I've left you go, and, but I can't bear it, and I'm going to save you because you're my people. Amazing compassion. Then he raises up Jephthah. God raises him, and Jephthah's interesting. Interesting story about Jephthah is he, he, um, he saves them from uh, the civil war, and Jephthah leads them into 18 years, uh, rescues them from 18 years of oppression. But Jephthah, they hated him. Nobody liked Jephthah. He was the outcast. He was the, you know, the politician that everyone loves to hate, you know, or the person everyone loves to hate. But all of a sudden, God anoints him to lead, and all of a sudden, people say, oh, yeah, we want him. Yeah, he's the man. He's really good. And again, it's a story of, you know, don't look for the person that is, is the one that's the obvious person. And uh, he rescues them. And then, you know, the last one I just wanted to talk about was Samson. Uh, leads into Samson. You know what happens with Samson. He is supposed to, um, his strength is in his hair. He marries, um, he marries into the Philistines and the first wife he, he, he doesn't stay with and, and she tries to undo him. And his second wife, he marries again, which he's not supposed to do, into the Philistines and, you know, she undoes him. And we know the story of Samson and Delilah, don't we? You know, that wicked woman, Delilah, right? No, actually, Samson was probably the problem there. And we know his story. And but he did deliver them. And he delivered them in a super, super creative way. Do you remember the story at the end when he has no eyes anymore and, and they're about to kill him? They've decided there's this party and they figure it'd be really cool if we, if we kill Samson at the party. That would be great entertainment, right? Like how many people do that at their parties, you know? But that's what they're going to do. And he says, and they bring him out for everyone to see. And he says, look, could you just stand me to... Well, you know the story. Stand me near those pillars. And then he asks God, please, one more time. And just sneaky, sneaky, while well, I had him in prison, his hair grew back. Mistake. You know, they should have kept cutting his hair. And, he, and anyway, he saves the people. It's just really exciting reading some of this stuff, guys. I'm, you know, I'm sure that you're, I'm probably way more excited than you are right now, but 
when you read these things, you just think, oh, God's amazing. But are you getting a bit bored with this or do you get a bit annoyed with God's people? Do you ever feel a bit annoyed at them and, and think, because this goes on for almost 400 years between Canaan and the first king. They keep telling God by their actions that they don't want him to rule and they don't want to live his way and they don't think it's the best. But at the same time, you're pretty impressed with God's patience. Do you get impressed with how patient God is and, and how faithful he is to his promises? This is a loving, patient and very compassionate God. He loves them because they're his people. And it's not because he needs stroking or anything. It, he knows that they need to follow God, that life works when they follow God. And, and it's always been God's plan. And the promised land was never just... God's mind was not that that would be their country and that they would be safe there. That wasn't the only thing. That was going to be their country. But his dream, God's plan, was they would be the light to other nations. And many times God says, and you will be my light to the nations. You'll be my people. And when you live the way that, that, that I want you to live... You'll shine. Other nations will see, wow, who is this God? Who is this person that they follow? And that was God's plan, that they wouldn't just be saved, they would be the light. And even bigger, that God would receive glory. And, you know, oftentimes we read and, and God says, and the nations will know. No is in capital letters. The nations will know who I am. You know, that God's people were supposed to be the way that God would be revealed to the nations. I'm getting ahead of myself, but start thinking of us because we're God's people, aren't we? Do you think that after the last judge, the people actually got it? How many of you think they actually got it after the last judge? I'm going to read you the last line and a half of Judges. Judges 21 verse 25 says this, In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Wonderful ending, isn't it? Everyone just did whatever they wanted and it got worse. They finally said to God that they wanted a king, didn't they? We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. How come we don't have a king? Well, actually, they did have a king. God said, I'm your king. No, but we want a king like them. We want a real king. Judges aren't good enough. And you as a king, God, that's not good enough. We want a real king, ultimately offensive to God. They were throwing back his love in his face And then you get that famous thing where God says, well, all right, guys, if you want a king, I'm going to give you a king, but you're not going to like this. You are not going to enjoy it. How many of you as parents have said, if you really want this, you you want a dog? You want that guinea pig? You're really not going to like this because you're going to have to feed it every day. You have to walk there. You really want this? You think you want it, but you're really not going to like it, you know? It was a bit like that. God says, you want a king? Okay, but you aren't going to like it. And then Samuel is the last judge and then God says to Samuel, go and anoint them a king. He says, no, I don't want to. And God says, no, go and do it. And the story of the kings is fascinating. That can be my next sermon, but lucky for you, Glenn's back next week. So, But maybe I'll keep it in store for you. It's pretty exciting to read. Okay, so that's them, but what about us? As we read this stuff or, or when I tell it like that, we, we think these people are stupid. We think, how dumb can they be? Uh, We look at God and we think, well, maybe we wouldn't have been so compassionate. We certainly wouldn't have been so silly. And we're really impressed that God is. But, you know, maybe maybe at times our lives mirror theirs, the people of Israel, in so many ways. I know mine does. If I look honestly at my life, I haven't driven out all the things that I should have. I've integrated worldly stuff 
into my life as well. I keep falling back into, into habits of disobedience and, and habits that don't reflect God or, or selfishness. You know, and I too, I suffer under those things. I make choices that, I, that aren't good for me and then I start crying out to God and I pray. You know how we do that? When things get bad, all of a sudden we're fantastic prayers. I told you that story once when I got stuck in Madagascar and I couldn't get out. I don't think I've ever, ever read as much of the Word and prayed as much as I did then. You know, and then even doing it out and open so God can see that I'm doing it, you know. You know, things like fear of man in my life, obedience, even if it costs, you know, trading in success, making success look different. And these are things about me. And it becomes about me. I, I try to follow my way. And sometimes it can even look innocent. You know, they, they had times of, you know, the judges are there and all of a sudden, oh, it's all good again. Things aren't bad. We're doing okay. You know, so they can create, and, and I have that, this false sense of security. Things are okay, you know. I, I'm not being oppressed right now. I'm eating every day. I've, I'm, my, my roof isn't leaking. I'm paying the electricity bill. I'm, I've got a few friends, I think. Well, how about you? How honestly do you look at all the parts of your life to see what or who you're serving? Who has the final say in your life, in your decisions? How many things... Is God really not Lord over in your life? <laughs> I hate asking myself that question because the truth is there are areas in my life that God isn't the Lord over. How passionately do you, do you or do we drive out the things that are not in line with God's word? And how do you even recognize and sense or become aware that that's happening, that those things are creeping into your life? And I think it's really easy. Things are not always rosy in the camp. We suffer. Our world suffers. We see what happened on Friday. We see what's happening in the world. We're affected. You know, I'm sure that Israelites felt and saw that things were not going well. I'm sure that's what made them cry out to God again. And we suffer things like oppression, stress, broken relationships, worries, loneliness, unforgiveness, church issues maybe. You see, if we reject his lordship, he said to his people, if you reject me, I'm going to step back. If we reject his lordship, he steps back and creates a void. And in that void, oppression comes. Other influences and rule and opposition. And even though we want it, autonomy, even though we want autonomy like the Israelites wanted it, we end up hating it. We know that we need God. You see, we too have integrated worldly values and ideas. We've, we've mixed with the, the world that we live in and then the thought world that we live in. We like what we see of the world. It's attractive to us. It's comfortable. It's nice. And sometimes we've even Christianized what we see in the world, you know, and I'm just being responsible. That's the responsible thing to do. And busy? Yep, I'm being busy because that's, you know, I'm, I'm hardworking. I'm, and God would understand that because it's for my family. I'm, I'm being responsible for my family. And I could go on, but... We're seeing the result of this in our lives, in our families, in our churches in today's day and age. In the last week I spoke about the generational slide. You know, the result of that is we're seeing a generation that's just drifting away from God, that isn't seeing God. They're seeing and hearing God, but they're not seeing that He's the number one. God's glory is no longer the number one pursuit. And that's what God said. I'm going to take you into the promised land and my glory will be your number one pursuit. And is it in my life? Occasionally it is, and if that happens, it's good. But 
You know, growing the kingdom of God is not our pursuit. Again, if it happens, it's great, but it's not the number one thing that we're busy with. And becoming the light isn't my number one pursuit. Becoming the place that the nations would see who God is through me, through us. And then life gets hard and things start to happen and we sense, uh, you know, God's distance and, and we cry out to God. You know, and I wonder in our situation, do we need judges? Do we need God to, to bring judges? And we have pastors and leaders. Do we need saving? I think we do. And maybe we don't have them in judges, but we have them in other people that lead us, that, that are you know, spiritual leaders for us, and that is pastors, leaders, teachers. You see, God gave us leadership just as he did back then, because it was a gift. The judges were a gift to God's people to save them. God gives us leaders as a gift. Seriously. We need it more than we're willing to admit. We receive counsel and direction through others and we need it even if we don't always like it. You know, and, and uh, you know, how many of us, particularly as kids, like to be told what to do, you know? Particularly when you get into your middle teens where, that's the point, isn't it about 13 or, no, about 14 or 15 that you pretty much know everything, there's not much else you could learn in the world? Is that the age? And you get to my age and you realise, I know nothing really. But you know, we're all a little bit like that with God. I know better. I, I, I want it my way. But we need the counsel of others. We need to be led by others. But what we need more than judges, what we need more than leaders, is we need a recognition and repentance. We need to cry out to God because not all is not well in our world with a willingness to resubmit to readjust our orientation, readjust our direction. Recognize, for, you know, recognition and repentance is the beginning. Recognizing, no, I'm not doing it the way that I'm supposed to. I'm not. I want the world to think that I am, but I, I really am not. And we need that more than anything else, a willingness to resubmit. And maybe after years, and some of these people were doing, they were living for years before they, uh, they found God again. Maybe after years of thinking and acting one way, we need to change some things, personally and corporately. Is it risky? Yep. Is it rewarding? Perhaps it is. We need to rethrone the king in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces. Again and again. Because we leak, we're humans, we, we need to do that. We need to be consciously rethroning God in our lives. Then we'll see that same compassionate Father because through Jesus, that same love and compassion and patience is reserved for us. In fact, we're one up on the Israelites, aren't we? The judges weren't perfect. Gideon, Samson, all these guys were human. But our judge is. The judges in the Israelite time weren't perfect. Our judge is. Our judge is Jesus himself. He's our judge. And he concludes that we are guilty of putting ourselves in our kingdoms first. And he concludes that we are guilty of minimizing and rationalizing his word and not responding to it. And then he does pass judgment and he proclaims punishment. But wait, what do you see? What does he do next? Our judge takes off his robes and clothes and he steps in to take the punishment for us. We have a perfect judge. We have a judge that says, dude, you're really messing up. 
Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take off my robes. I'm going to step into that place for you. He takes off his robes, takes the punishment for us so that we can walk scot-free. This is amazing. Think about that for a moment. We have a judge who says, yeah, you're guilty. Then he climbs down off the bench and he says, let me do this for you. Let me serve. Let me pay the price. Let me do that. I want to do that. I think I've lost the wonder of that sometimes. And I think we've lost the wonder of that. We look at the judge. That's our judge. That's our king. That's our Lord. How blessed, privileged and loved are we that God would do that for us. How amazing is it that we get grace while we were still sinning? This is our God. This is our Savior. This is why we live. What a good and great Father. That's who He is. Again, you know, this is not primarily about bad people then and, and, and bad people now and how bad we mess up. That's reality. It's who we are. But it's eclipsed by the love, the patience, forgiveness and grace of our Father in heaven. It's about the privilege of being called sons and daughters of God, even when we don't behave like them. Think about that. Even though I don't behave like my father expects me to, I'm still his son and he still says to me, you're my son. That's a privilege that we have. We're loved by God because that's also who we are. It's about fresh opportunities for us each day, even today, to cry out to him as we recognize we need to and begin to let him change our lives. Inside, in our actions, choices, lifestyle, so that they begin, our churches, our life, and our, our, we begin to reflect his kingdom. He hasn't given up. He's faithful to his promises. He made a covenant. We are covenant people. We understand that, don't we? We're covenant people. That covenant can't be broken. So it's terribly spiritual, isn't it? It's really spiritual to understand that. But at the same time, it's terribly practical, isn't it? Spiritual decisions have practical outcomes, don't they? What a wonderful God we have. What a wonderful incentive to take the things that weigh on our hearts that we know don't reflect Him. What a great incentive to just go with freedom and say, wow, I get an opportunity to work on this. I get an opportunity to deal with this. We get an opportunity to reflect, to be the light. And right now, this light needs a little bit of dusting off. This light needs a bit of a polish. This light needs a little bit of work or the the flame needs to be lifted or whatever. But God says, that's okay. Let me help you do that. I'm here for you to do that. We can do that. It starts with this recognition, this repentance and this recognizing, eh, I've been doing it my own way for so long. How good is God? If nothing else, I pray today that when you get this little history lesson that you see from the judges that we have an amazing God who didn't just do this for them. He did it for us and one step further, he stepped in and took and gave his life for us. How cool is that? Is that an amen? Is that worth an amen? Yeah, yeah, amen. Let me pray. God, it truly is amazing that, um, that we get to belong to you the way that, that we're, we're hearing it this morning, that we understand 
that we even begin to understand what you did for us and what you do for us, what you keep doing for us. And Jesus, what you did, that you uh, decided to take our place. That for all the things that we did that were worthy of punishment, that were probably worthy of, of rejection, you took that rejection, you took that punishment, you stepped into our place so that we wouldn't have to suffer that, so that we would be with you. Lord, I'm so thankful for that. We're so thankful for that. Lord, and I pray that, that this would serve, that your word this morning would serve as a, an incentive, a, a motivation, a catalyst for us to cry out to you where we need to, personally, as a family, corporately, recognize where we have not, um, we've let go, where we haven't held on to your values, where we've watered down things, where we've um, walked away from what you've called us to be and do, where we've decided to um, compromise, or whatever it might be. Lord, I, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would show us those areas. And that you would give us the courage to cry out to God, to cry out to you, Lord, for mercy and for the ability, strength to change. Lord, it is spiritual. The truth isn't changed. The truth is that you died for us. But the truth is also practical that we respond in living for you in a way that reflects that. I'm just going to give you a moment. Just if there's an area in your life or in your surroundings or your world that you realize this needs to come under God's lordship, then I just want to encourage you to do that right now. And as you pray those prayers, and I pray them too, Lord, I pray the grace of God and the passion of the Father, and the love of God be with you as you step this out, be with me as I step this out, be with us as we step this out. May you find him when you cry out. May you meet him and know him. May you be given the courage and the ability to to make the changes. May you live in awe and wonder of an amazing God. Amen.